We find ourselves in the title of this message, Worldliness, Its Cause and Cure, Part 2, and we're looking at James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10, really form a, a key unit there. So as you turn to James 4, let me begin our reading at verse 4, and I'll read down through 10. You adulterous people, do you not know that your friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. What a very, very important passage on the subject of worldliness. John Piper, a voice from our own present day, said that when you become so blind that the maker of the galaxies and ruler of nations and knower of all mysteries and lover of our souls becomes boring, he said that only one thing is left. The love of the world. And I think he's right. When you become bored with the Scripture and bored with the Word of God and bored with church or whatever it may be, Piper said only one thing is left, and it's the love of the world. A voice from the past, Spurgeon said, one reason why the church at the present moment has so little influence over the world, he said, is because... The world has so much influence over the church. And I think he's right. Many years ago on October 12th, maybe some of you remember this, 1972, a rugby team chartered a Fairchild 227, a 227. And the plan was to fly to Santiago, Chile, a flight which required flying over the rugged Andes Mountains. There were 45 on board, including the crew, and bad weather caused the plane to land in a place called Mendoza. The following morning, they flew south to the Planchon Pass, and they would never make their destination. At 3.21 p.m., the pilot reported to air traffic control in Santiago and he was over the pass of Planchon. At 3.24 p.m., he reported their plane was over a small town in Chile named Quirico, and he was authorized at that point to turn north and begin his descent to the airport. At 3.30 p.m., when Santiago Control Tower spoke to the F-227 plane, there was, no, there was no reply, nor would there be for 10 weeks. The plane crashed. 
Several things made the search attempts futile, much like the recent crash. The Andes is a vast, treacherous, and often confusing range. The top of the plane was white, making it impossible to spot from the air. Heavy snowfall had caused the plane to kind of blend into the surroundings. There was little chance that the plane would ever be found and less chance that any of the passengers could have lived through that crash. Ten weeks later, a farmer was tending his cattle in a remote valley deep in the Andes. And he spotted two gaunt bearded figures in the distance. And these two figures made wild gestures and they fell to their knees as almost they were in supplication. But the farmer, fearing their appearance, fled the scene. The next day, however, he returned and noticed two scary strangers were still there across the river. And he approached the bank of the river, wrapped some paper and a pen in a handkerchief and tossed it to the other side. And when the men threw it back, these words had been written with a quivering hand. I come from a plain that fell in the mountains. I am Uruguayan or Uruguayan, however you might say that. And those who had endured the ordeal had done so because they had to make a radical, radical adjustment. And instead of starving to death, they decided to strip thin layers of skin off the frozen bodies of the victims and survive by eating the flesh of those who had once been their friends and once been their teammates. I mean, it was literally a life or death, albeit painful decision. But because of that decision, 16 survived and were rescued. And the story is told in a book that bears the appropriate one-word title, Alive, Alive. I mean, some of you this morning need to make a radical adjustment. Oh, not in the way that these particular teammates had to do, but in another way, and maybe even more serious, you need to make a radical adjustment. You may this morning need to break off a compromising relationship. You may this morning need to make an adjustment in your thought life. You may need to make an adjustment in your married life or in your home life. The question I want to pose to you this morning is what would our Lord say to you? What does he say to you this morning by way of his word? This word is inspired. This word is authoritative. This word is inerrant in all its parts and all his, its words. And it's as though James, as he picked up that pen on the parchment and the scroll wrote, but he writes for our own day, and it is alive today as it was when he penned it. What does he want you to do? What kind of adjustment do you maybe need to make in light of this passage? Now, we're looking at the eighth feature here in James chapter 4, namely that our faith is tested in our relationship to the world, our relationship to the world. And his, his concern here is not so much as it was in 4, 1 through 3, our conflict with one another. 
His concern here is our conflict with God by becoming friends of the world. Now, as we approach the text, it probably would be maybe uh, appropriate for I to say, for me to mention, who is he addressing here? I mean, when he says, look at verse 4, you adulterous people, who is he addressing when he says that? Now, it's interesting that there's no mention of the word brethren, at least in this particular section. And what I'm getting at, and maybe some of you have talked about this at Grace Life, is James addressing people in the church who think they're in Christ, but are really not. And he's actually saying to those people who think they're in Christ, but are living in such a worldly way, that not only do they need to repent, they also need to, they need to come to Christ. In other words, maybe as some would say, He's addressing a people who think they're in the kingdom, but they're not in the kingdom. And I suppose if you take it that way, then you've got to interpret it that way, and then you've got to apply it that way. But I think otherwise. I think he's talking to us. It'd be real easy to say he's just talking about the people who name Christ and then live like the world and they're not really Christians. And it certainly may well be that could be the case. But I actually think he's, he's addressing us. I think he's addressing believers. I'll give you three reasons why I think that quickly here. Number one, just the flow of the text. I mean, just the flow of the text. If you just go back to four one, what causes quarrel and fights, he says, among you. Who's that? Well, he's certainly talking to us, is he not? I mean, we're not going to say that he's addressing a a worldly people who have fights and quarrels and they're outside of the church. No, he's addressing us. These quarrels and fights are among you. Verse 1 says, is it not your passage at war within you? And we talked about that, that even though you're a believer, these things wage war within you. If you back up to chapter 3 and verse 13, he says, who is wise? Among an understanding among you by his good conduct, uh, show let him show the works and the meekness of wisdom. I really think he's addressing us. I could hardly think that James, in his mind, is going to switch his audience from speaking to you and then all of a sudden begin to speak to a group of people who do not know Christ and are worldly and they need to repent. In fact, not only is the flow of the text looking back that way, go to go forward. In 4.11, where he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. So then all of a sudden, does he flip there into speaking to us again as he addresses the people, maybe sandwiched in the middle, who don't know him? No, I actually think he's speaking to us. I think he's addressing us this morning. In fact, so I think, number one, the flow of the text. Number two, the commands that follow when he tells us, and, and you'll see it in 7 through 10, are 10 imperative commands. And I think these imperative commands are given to us. So you can see them, glance down in your Bible, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, that's a second one. Thirdly, draw near to God. Fourth, cleanse your hands and so forth. If you take it that these are unbelievers 
then you need to say that those are commands for an unbeliever to repent and come to Christ. But I would say to you, I hardly think that an unbeliever can submit to God on his own. I really don't think an unbeliever on his own can resist the devil. I don't think an unbeliever on his own can draw near to God by virtue of his choice. So it appeared to me that these commands are given to you of what you and I need to do in the context of worldliness. And maybe some of you need that type of radical adjustment. So number one, the flow of the text. Secondly, the commands that follow in the text afterward. And thirdly, um, or that was actually the, the third issue, was the commands that come afterward seem to be given to a believer even as you enter into 13 where he says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and, and so forth. So what James does, if that gets your attention, and I hope it does, okay, is that he exposes the deadly danger of worldliness And then secondly, what he does is provide and develop a gracious cure to overcome it, okay? He exposes it, and then he gives the cure. He tells us the danger of it, and then he gives us the antidote, if you will. He exposes the reality of worldliness, and then he provides the solution for us, okay? So first, the deadly danger of worldliness, and we looked at that last week in verses 4 and 5. He provided two reasons why worldliness is abhorrent to God. Number one, we noted in verse four, it severs our covenant relationship with God. It severs our covenant relationship with God. And he says there in 4.4, you adulterous people. In other words, he says to those people to whom he writes, and it could be you. That's the point. It could be you. But you're going to reason with me, I'm not worldly. Really? If you take a a definition of worldliness in just kind of an external one, maybe we'd be okay. But if you take a definition of worldliness in the book, are you partial towards people? Is your tongue under control? Is there selfish ambition in your heart and so forth? He begins to address it along that line. But he basically says here of the danger, it severs our relationship with God. And he talks about you adulterous people. And we looked last two weeks ago that adultery in the Old Testament spoke of Israel's spiritual unfaithfulness to God. And that term adultery is used as a metaphor because in the Old Testament, God had joined himself to Israel by establishing a covenant with them. And God is pictured in the Old Testament as a husband, and Israel, sadly to say, was pictured as the unfaithful wife. In fact, as you begin to look at that covenant, Israel's covenant with God demanded an exclusive devotion to him. And when that relationship is stained by unfaithfulness to the world, it is called spiritual adultery. It is likened in this sense to have an affair with the world. That's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you, as as the bride of Christ, 
You've been promised to Christ as a bride is promised to her husband, 2 Corinthians 11.2. And so he says, you adulterous people, look at verse 4. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? It's a strong rebuke implying the answer, yes, friendship with the world is enmity with God. And we mentioned last week that word friendship is a very, very intimate biblical word, if you will, not in friendship in our own day. We might say that about a number of people, but this ideal is an intimate word. It means to love. It means to have an affection for. It it carries the ideal of to kiss, and it's the ideal of the sharing of all things. And sadly, this friendship here is is with the world. It's a love affair with the world. In fact, Jesus said, remember, no one can serve what? Two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. So James says, look again in 4.4, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So the deadly danger of worldliness, number one, is it severs our relationship with God. It cuts, if you will, that which we've been promised to and you promised to make a covenant to him. And then he goes, look at verse 4 or 5. He says, do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? We noted, secondly, that worldliness provokes the jealousy of God. We said last two weeks ago that the Spirit here, I believe, is capital S, and the Spirit given to us at salvation yearns earnestly for total loyalty to him. In other words, not only is God, if you will, made a covenant with us, but the Spirit of God who dwells inside the believer desires undivided loyalty. Look at verse 4 or 5 again, that he yearns jealousy, jealously. We noted that that speaks of God's character, speaks of the attribute of his jealousy. Remember you said back in Exodus 20, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness what is in heaven above or on earth beneath. For I, the Lord, am your God, am a jealous God. So our God is jealous and he longs for total, undeserved, unwavering allegiance from his people. And so the spirit of God in us is longing for that. So, number one, it severs our covenant with God and it provokes the jealousy of God. You say, what can I do then? What, what, what can I do in light of this? Well, here's the cure now for worldliness and it's listed in 6 through 10. He says there, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Here is the, here is the solution, if you will. Here is the antidote to worldliness, and it's in one word. It's, it's amazing. It'd be different than what we would humanly think. It's the word grace. And, and the thought here, Grace Church, is this, that though God demands absolute loyalty, here's the answer. He provides the grace to be victorious. That's the thought here. Now, you'll note there, look again at the text. He gives, it says, more grace. Some translation says, say, will say that he gives greater grace. Now you have to ask, what kind of grace is that? 
Now, I believe he's talking to us as a group of believers. So I don't believe that he's talking about saving grace here. I think that what he's saying is we already possess saving grace. According to uh, James 1.18, he breathed forth life into us. Rather, here, what he's talking about is more grace or a greater grace. He's talking about here the continuing grace to live victorious in a sin-stained world. That's what he provides. In fact, some of you might even think that this text is so hard-hitting. You, you might even get battered by the world all the time. You, you feel discouraged at times, and you feel as though you can't go on, and you feel as though you can't live this thing called the Christian life. And in light of the world in which we live, in light of the clutches that it has on so many things, it's hard to be victorious. But James says, no, no, here's the answer. You can live victorious. You can live a life pleasing to God. God will help you, and he's going to help you. Here's the answer, by his grace. In fact, I'm thinking of the writer in Hebrews where it says, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Here's the grace that sustains us. It's not saving grace. It's what we might call continuing grace. It's not saving grace. It's what we might call sanctifying grace. Do you remember when Paul, in the midst of his trial, in the midst of the thorn in the flesh, and there's a number of things that people think are his, you know, his thorn in the flesh. The number of scholars believe it's, a, it's a, some kind of physical, <clears throat> excuse me, affliction you know they some accounts and they're not biblical accounts but extra biblical accounts said that Paul was a very short man that he was just a little over five feet that he had been you know beaten 30 times you know five times without number and spent a night and day in the sheet you know in the in the sea and he was shipwrecked and so forth and he, they just believed that some of his his thorn was a physical ailment I, I don't think so I think when you look at the scripture when it says that it speaks of a thorn in the flesh and it talks about a messenger and the word for messenger is the word for angelos and it spoke of of uh, of a person and i really believe what his thorn in the flesh was was a person it was a person that was afflicting him it was a person that was out to destroy him it was a person that hunted him down and he had this thorn and he came before the Lord. You remember, and he prayed three times that if it were God's will, that this thorn might depart. And you remember that the Lord answered him and said, no. And God said to him in 2 Corinthians twelve nine, my grace is what? It's sufficient for you. And my power is perfected, what? In weakness, the grace that was sufficient for Paul wasn't saving grace. Paul was a redeemed man. It was continuing grace. It was what we call sanctifying grace. So here, I think just James is being so kind to us. And it really comes out a little different way than you would want to kind of preach it, you would think, that he's attacking worldliness, but he's attacking worldliness and saying the solution here is God's grace. Now, the condition for receiving that grace is found in the text. Look at verse 6. 
Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So God gives grace, but he also requires from you humility. Okay? Now, you look again at verse 6. He says he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, and usually when you have that designation, it says, it's speaking of a scripture. And then if you look down in verse 6, it's in quotations, is it not? At least in my Bible it is. It says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That is a quotation out of the book of Proverbs, out of Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. And there in 334, it says, though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. That's the text. So what James did is he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. He says, what you need, the cure, is grace. And God will give you this grace through humility. And here what he does is he quotes this text that he gives grace to the afflicted. In fact, it's very similar. And maybe Paul had it in, or James, excuse me, had it in mind in 1 Peter 5, 5. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now the text says that he's opposed to the proud. And if God's grace is to come to you, your pride must die, is the thought. And so the conflicts in 4, 1 through 3 were manifestations of pride's ugly head. That ambition and that selfishness and that desire for murder is but a manifestation of pride. And here what the text is saying is that God gives his grace to the humble. In fact, that's a biblical principle. Psalms fifty-one seventeen: the sacrifices of God are of a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The Old Testament talks about that. In fact, it says in Psalm 34, 18, that the Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. So here is the cure to worldliness and its ugly head of pride and conflict. Now, what James does from this point down, from 7 to 10 is he provides 10 commands that enable the the believer to appropriate God's grace. It's interesting. The answer is grace. But he says grace comes through humility. And then what he does is he gives 10 commands to appropriate this grace. We say 10 commands. There are, just in the original language, 10 imperatives. So I put it this way, that the God who says, here is my grace to receive, also says, here is my commands, if you will, to obey. Now, I believe what you have here, and it will take us a few weeks, is that these 10 commands describe what humility is. They describe verse 6, that he gives grace to the humble. He's opposed to the proud. He gives grace. And to see that, He gives these 10 commands, and they describe humility. Now, what I want to do is arrange these 10 imperatives around around what one called grace principles, okay? So here's the antidote to worldliness. 
Here's the antidote. Here is the solution, if you will, to a, world, to a worldly lifestyle. Now, this may be for you, and if it is, then if the shoe fits, we say wear it. It could be that you know people who are caught in the throes of this. And what would the Word of God say to them? What would the Word of God say to you? Okay? So what I'd like to do is take these ten imperatives and put them in four grace principles. Okay? The first grace principle is submission. Second grace principle is worship. The third grace principle is repentance. And the fourth grace principle is humility. For our time this morning, I want to focus on that first grace principle, and it's found there in verse 7. And that first grace principle has two components to it. You can see it there in verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God, and then this second component, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Let's see if we can discern here the word of God. He says the first thing you must do if this is the danger of worldliness and here's the cure and the cure is hooked to grace and humility, here's the first principle that you must do. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That's what you need to do. Now, so what does that mean, submit yourselves, therefore, to God? It's a military term and it was given to soldiers if you will, we, we liken that word, and obviously this goes in many other places in the New Testament, but here in the context, it's the ideal of submission. You've got a soldier who was under the authority, if you will, of a ranking officer, and he was to submit to them is the etymology of the word. In fact, the word for submit comes from what we call a compound word, and and words always give meaning. The, the word comes from hupo tasso is the word hupo. If, if you can just picture this, hupo is just a preposition, and it just means under is the thought. And the word tasso is just simply the word to place. So when you put them together, you understand, submit yourselves therefore to God. It is this, it is to place yourself under. That's what the word means. If you're a soldier, you're going to place yourself under that ranking officer. I think of my brother Steve, who was a very, very young man, just uh, old. He's, uh, he's, my brother is just a little older than me, and he went into the Marines at a high school. And I remember he had all these things that he was going to do when they were talking to the recruiting office, and Steve went into the Marines. He went in with his buddy that, that you know, he was supposed to serve with for four years. And you know how the drill goes. He signed up down in the San Fernando Valley, and he signed up with the recruiter. And then his day came for him to go into the Marines. They were taking him down to Pendleton. This is the story that he told me afterward. They took him down to Pendleton. He said the bus ride down with all the other new Marines was pretty fun. He said, but when he got down to San Diego and when he got to Pendleton, He said he stepped foot off the bus and he said his world changed for four years, (laughs) is what he said. He said he stepped foot off the bus and he said immediately there were drill sergeants in his face yelling at the top of his lungs, get in there, you ugly recruit, you know, and they sent him over in there. I said, what happened? He said, well, he made me sit down in a chair and off came all my hair. They made him a jarhead within about 30 minutes. 
And they said, those glasses, you don't take those kind. Like, I don't know, these are just a pair of glasses. You know, they gave them a new pair of just thick, you know, steel. It was like you can crush them with your boot and they still come out. You know, they said, get those clothes off your back. And they gave him his new fatigues and gave him his new outfit. And they said, you no longer are an individual. And then Steve said, man, I thought that was the worst of it until he said, I met my ranking drill sergeant. And they said, Steve said his name was the Incredible Hulk is what they called him. He said he was six foot four, 260 pounds of just absolute muscle. And Steve said he was in his face. You could not look at him. You could not eyeball him. You could not do anything. And the point was, Steve said they were breaking him down completely so that no longer did he ever think as an individual. He thought now in terms of his platoon because their lives were going to depend upon that. And so they stripped all your own selfishness, all your own ambition, and you had to function under, if you will, a ranking officer. And when I think of that word, that's where that word came from. And I'm thinking of Paul in 2 Timothy 2, 4, where he says, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him. We understand that. But here what Paul does, excuse me, James, is he takes that word and he transforms it. Look what James says again in 4.7. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. In other words, you need to get under God. You need to line yourself underneath almighty God. He is God. He is far more important than a ranking officer, though one must give allegiance to that ranking officer. He says, if you're battling this sin, submit to him. Get underneath him, if you will. Now, I should say, and it just, I don't know, it's just intriguing. I said it's an imperative command, and it is a grace principle. And the first grace principle is submission. But I have you note here that the word is in the passive form. And, and you say, well, okay, Scott, what does that mean? It, when you put a word not in its active form, but its passive form, the thought here is voluntary submission, okay? In other words, what, what James is asking for and what the Scripture is saying is you need to submit yourselves voluntarily, if you will, to God. I mean, certainly you would agree that one can submit Without humility, that's, that could be done all the time. And he does not ask here, does God, for a forced obedience. He desires voluntary devotion. And so the antidote to the world is to surrender your will to God, to submit to God. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, it's to exchange our will for his will. Our plans for his plans. Our desires in the flesh for his desires. Our own glory for his glory. In other words, I think James is saying stop fighting, stop pushing, rather surrender and relinquish your control. Submit, therefore, to God. And so I have to ask you this question right now. Are you willing to give up your will to the will of God? Or do you try to control everything and everybody? Is God your commanding officer? Okay. 
I think of some of the Bible characters who simply did not submit. And one of them that comes to my mind is when David sinned with Bathsheba. You say, well, certainly, Scott, he submitted. Well, no, no, he didn't. He didn't submit for about a year in his life, okay? He went into hiding for a year. You say, yeah, but the prophet came and said, you is the man. I, I know. A year later, okay? And he was miserable for that year. Psalm 32 conveys his heart. How blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. But for a year it wasn't. It wasn't. You say, well, why not? Because he was worldly. He was worldly. He came out, you know the story, on the balcony in the spring when kings should have been out at war. And he looks down and he sees Bathsheba. Listen, if that's not worldliness, what is? And, and so rather than being out on the battlefield and leading his army, he's out just messing around. He's not doing what he's supposed to do. And he sees Bathsheba. And I suppose he could have saw her and brought his aid and turned another way. But you know the account. He sins for Bathsheba. And then she comes to him. And then he has a relationship with her. Then she gets pregnant with him. Now he's in trouble. Now I better call Uriah home. His most faithful, loyal, you know, just commanding officer in his army. And you know the account. He brings him home and wants him to sleep at his house. So there's a cover up there. He doesn't sleep at his house because how could he sleep at his house in his own room with his wife while his other men in his platoon are out to battle. So he doesn't do it. So David says, okay, let's do a second day. And then he puts wine and all kind of drink around Uriah so that he would get him drunk so that he would go into his wife. And you know the account. He didn't sleep at home again. So then he sends a message. He gives him a letter and he says, take this to the commanding officer. And it was his own death warrant. And when that man who was above Uriah opened it, they said, put Uriah at the front of the battle and then remove yourself. How? I mean, you can't get any cheesier than that, can you? I mean, you talk about worldliness. It entered into his life. And so he finally, when his sin was exposed, let me get back to that. Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not count iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. He finally had to pray, right? He said, for when I kept silent, that's what he did. He said, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up by the heat of summer. Listen, when he kept silent of sin, he physically saying, "Is it, it affected me physically. I was groaning, if you will, all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. You say, what was he doing? He's running. He's hiding. He's not submitting to God. He said, my strength was dried up as with the heat of the summer. And then he said in Psalm 32, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I love that. 
he finally came clean after about a year. And he said, I confess it to you, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You say, what did he do? He submitted. He got under. And I just think so often when you have this theme of worldliness, you and I begin to fight God, fight his plan, fight his sovereignty, fight trials, fight them all over the place, begin to develop a wrong view of God. And what James says to the Spirit of God now is get underneath him. You've got to submit to him. And so I'm asking you, and I should be like a little bit kinder, is it voluntarily? Maybe there's something in your life and you've become exposed to something. And here's the grace principle. It is a grace principle. Submit, therefore, yourselves to God. And, and the reason I said that in Psalm 32, you can look this one up on your own. I looked it up even yesterday, is when he gets done at the end of that psalm, he would say to you by the Spirit of God in Psalm 32, 9, don't be like the horse and the mule who are stubborn. Stubborn. You just you try to get a bridle on them. You just, some horses are stubborn. Some mules are stubborn. Listen, some people are stubborn. And I know people who I mentioned in trials can get off the groove because of a trial that came their way, and they could never make it back in the tracks. And I know people who go 10, 15, 20 years holding on to anger against God when God would say to them, by James, by the Spirit of God, you need to get underneath them. And he's not going to bend you. He wants your voluntary submission, and sometimes the Lord will bend us to that point anyways. I'm thinking of the turning point of the prodigal son when he came to his senses and he said in the Gospels, Father, I have sinned against heaven and you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he submitted, didn't he? Now, that's coming to Christ. In fact, one man said, plumber, he said, submission to God is the beginning, the middle, and the end of the prodigal's return from the disastrous familiarity with the world. Now you say, well, Scott, this is submit. Oh, listen. You know how hard that is? Really hard for some people. If you're proud, come back to verse 6. If you're independent, then you won't even recognize your own sin. I mean, there are some people who think it's my way or the highway as believers. And pride sneaks in. In fact, Barclay, writing on pride, said, Pride does not know its own need. It cherishes its own independence, and it does not recognize its own sin. Now, I'm saying to you, can you now submit your entire situation, your entire circumstance, without reservation to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Can you do that? But here's the point. And don't miss this, because this is the point. This is a grace principle, and it's a principle of submission. But listen, Christ is greater than your pride. He's greater than your stubbornness. He gives more grace to overcome your sin and your stubbornness and pride. In other words, you may be sitting here, you're right, pastor, you got me, you're reading my email. 
No, here's what I'm saying, is if you feel like you're that stubborn and that prideful, here's what James drops in. He's going to give you more what? Grace. He's going to give you greater grace. He's going to overcome your heart. Now listen, what you must do is submit to him. But he's going to give you the grace even to submit to him. So he's going to overcome your pride and your stubbornness. He gives more grace to overcome that. What is God asking of you this morning? Have you been to God? Have you submitted your entire life to him? Your trial to him? Your business to him? Your farm to him? Every single dimension, your relationship to him? Your boyfriend to him? Your girlfriend to him? You got to get under God. Now listen. You might need to make a radical adjustment as I open the sermon. If so, get underneath them. Break up with that girl. Break up with that guy. Stop flirting or whatever you need to do. But listen, you got to get your life under God. And I think he's actually talking to us. But as soon as you submit to God, be careful because look what follows. Look at it in the text. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. And I think he's talking to us. Then he says, resist the what? The devil. In other words, if you're going to live victorious over the world, you got to resist the devil. So what does that mean? Well, anti-histame, that's not something you take if you're sick, but anti just means against, okay? And histame just means to stand. So it just you put it together, take your stand against the devil. In other words, as you submit to God, and I think they probably are in some relative order here. As you submit to God, watch out because you're going to have something else come in your life. You've got to resist the devil. You've got to stand against the evil one. You've got to submit to God, resist the devil. And I think some people do the opposite. You submit to the devil and you resist God. I mean, Satan is crafty. Now, if you take this as just a a plan for people to come to Christ, then I'm not sure how an unbeliever resists the devil, right? But if you're a believer and you feel like you're getting sucked into Vanity Fair, get underneath God and then stand against the evil one. I'm thinking about Judas when he betrayed Jesus. Jesus said of him, the devil put it in his heart. Regarding Ananias in Acts 5.3, he said, why has Satan filled your heart and lied to the Holy Spirit? In the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel 24, Satan provoked David to number the people. Listen, one of the devil's greatest tricks of the trade is pride. And he, if you will, it said he provoked David to number the people. I'm thinking of Ephesians 4.26. Do not let the sun go down on your, what? Anger. And do not give the devil, what? An opportunity. You just create a wedge right in there. Might put a wedge right in your marriage. It could be that you're worldly and you're getting sucked up and carried away. And here James is saying, no, no, get underneath God and resist the evil one. I'm thinking of the armor of God that our struggle is not against what? Flesh and blood but against rulers and against powers and against world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's our struggle. And you may be struggling with that as it relates to the world. And he says, you got to resist them. Okay. 
In other words, you fight, I fight a supernatural foe. You struggle, if you will, the thought is in hand-to-hand combat. And his temptations include lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And what you are to do, and I give you this freedom, to resist the devil. Stand against him, if you will. You say, well, how do I stand against the devil? Let me just, for sake of an application, look over at Ephesians just for a moment. Would you go there? You got to see this, and maybe I'll just stay there for a minute. So how do I do that? How do I practically stand against the devil? How do I resist the devil? Well, here it is right here. He says in 613, therefore, take up the what? The whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all, stand firm. A number of times he just keeps saying that. If you go back to verse 10, he says, Be strong in the Lord. Verse 11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, Take up that whole armor of God and having done all, he says at the end of 13, stand firm. You say, well, okay, resist the devil, stand firm, take up the whole armor of God. How do I do that? Look down in verse 16. He says, in all circumstances, one of the components, he says, take up the what? The shield of faith. He says, take up the shield of faith. Here, if you go into James, he says, resist him. He says there, and he'll flee from you. Here, he says, you've got a, a piece of armor here. You've got a piece that's called the shield. Look what the shield does. Verse 16, which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming darts of what? The evil one. The shield, somehow, I'll explain it, extinguishes the darts that will come your way. It reminds me, don't turn, but in 1 Peter 5, 8, the adversary, your, it says there, the adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring, what, lion, seeking someone to, what, devour. And there Peter said, resist him firm in your faith. So now remember, as you're in the context of Ephesians, he's writing, and as he's writing this letter, he, of course, is a, it's a prison epistle, and he's chained to a Roman soldier in prison. And he's chained to that soldier. And maybe as he's chained to that soldier, he's looking at this soldier and he's kind of taking the physical components of a soldier's armor and he transforms them into a spiritual truth. And here he says in that truth in 616, take up the shield of faith. Now in your notes there, it says, what was a Roman shield? There were several shields that the Romans used, but kind of two stand out. One, if you can picture this, was a small round shield. That shield, if you will, was small. It was light, and it would be a round shield. And usually what they did is strap that shield to the left forearm. And, if, and, and then the soldier, if it, if it was strapped to his left arm, would use his other one, if you will, to fend off the blows with, with the attack. So he'd kind of be fighting like this, and you can picture that and Kind of reminds me when I was little, when I used to throw stuff at my brother and he at me and I would take the trash can lid, you know, and I'd go, that, that's the picture in my mind. And I want you to know that's not the shield that Paul's talking about in Ephesians, okay? 
He's talking about, not that shield, he's talking about a large wooden plank. And, and why? You say, well, why do you know that? Because of the word, okay? He's not talking about the small round shield. He's talking about a large wooden plank. And this plank, if you will, this shield was four feet by two and a half feet. And this plank, if you will, was made of, of, of kind of thick wood. In fact, in the Greek, the word is theron, and it comes from the word thyra, which means door. And so you got this, if you will, this four feet by two and a half foot shield, because what the opposing enemies would do is they put cotton material on the arrows, and they would soak those arrows with pitch. And once the arrows hit the target, the pitch would splatter and it would start fires on the clothing and the soldiers or in the cities or in the camps or whatever. And what the Romans did to counteract this attack was they designed this large wooden shield. And the shield was designed and built for full protection, if you will, of the whole body. It was protection, if you will, from the rain of arrows that would be coming and incoming from the enemy. And the purpose of that shield was to intercept the enemy's fiery arrows. And as these arrows came into the shield, they would put on the kind of the outside, if they're behind it, the outside of the shield, they would put a leather covering and they often soak that leather covering in oil or kind of a base, an oil base or even sometimes water. And what they would do is these arrows came raining in, it would extinguish the fiery pitch on the arrows. And what the soldiers and what the Romans did is they had a long line of soldiers that would carry these shields. And what the Romans would do is that these soldiers would stand the shield in front of the troops and they would get kind of behind him and as the Roman army moved toward the enemy the soldiers would plant these four by two shields side by side in creating if you will an incredible wall of protection in fact these advancing columns the Romans called phalanxes were the terror of the Roman foes you might ask how effective were the shields well church history records after the siege of Drachimas, a man by the name of Sceva counted 220 darts in one shield. So you can imagine, here is the enemy sitting in these arrows with pitch on the, on the arrow that would normally splatter. They get behind him. The arrow hits, hits the oil base or the water. It extinguishes the, 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 the arrow that had come in. Now, what does Paul mean? Look down again at Ephesians 6.16. He says, take up the shield of what? Faith. In other words, he transforms it, does he not, from a physical component into a spiritual reality. He says, take up the shield of faith. Look at 6.16 with what? Which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, listen, here is this picture in the Christian life. You need to put on your armor. You've got to take up your shield. You've got to take up your shield of faith. And the reason you need that shield is you've got fiery darts being shot, if you will, by the evil one. Now, this shield of faith, again, he's talking to believers in Ephesians, is not saving faith. This is a living faith. At salvation, you were given the gift of faith, and that leads to a life of faith. And here, what Paul is saying in Ephesians 6 is that faith enables you to extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. 
And so that's what it says in 1 Peter 5.8, resist him firm in your faith. You say, well, how does that work? Well, here's how it can work. He could send a number of darts your way. I'll call it number one, the dart of doubt. He just discouraged people. Well, the evil one. He just sends the dart of doubt. He'll cause people to doubt the authenticity of the authenticity of the scriptures. He'll cause you to doubt if God really loves you. Does God really forgive me? And usually the dart of doubt is always accompanied by a desire for disobedience. I think of when Satan came to Eve and he said to her, hath God really, what, said? He'll just start firing these arrows in on you. He'll just fire them in. And what here, James, what he's saying is you got to take up, you know, resist him, as it says there, and firm in your faith because he's going to send that. I'm just thinking of Revelation 12.10 where it says that he accuses them before our God day and night. He'll just remind you of your weaknesses. And you've got to, if you will, take up your shield. You've got to resist that through truth. So number one, he'll do it through the dart of doubt. Secondly, the dart of despair. He could just cause you to despair. And, and, and now Paul's going to say in Ephesians, you've got to take up that shield. He'll bring frustrations to you. He'll bring the rejection of a spouse to you. He'll bring a failed marriage to you, will the evil one. He'll cause you to despair. He'll cause you to despair even to living your life. He will bring criticism, will the evil one. He will give you persecution. He will bring physical pain at times in your life. He will bring the death of a loved one in your life and twist it, okay? He will bring cancer, whatever it might be, to your eyes, to your ears, to your heart. He will do a number of things. And I think oftentimes you just live in this world and you don't have your shield of faith up. And Satan is going to fire these darts of doubt. He's going to fire the darts of despair. You're going to be like the disciples in the boat who were perishing in the storm, who despaired unto life. Okay? You could even be, and I had to suffer through these movies with five girls in my family. Did you ever watch Anne of Green Gables? And I had to watch Anne Shirley, who went through the depths of despair, right? You may find yourself in one of those. Have you ever just felt overwhelmed at times? And he can do that, and he can bring, thirdly, a dart of discontent, and you've got to take up that shield of faith. Because when you don't have that shield, you can doubt God's character, who he is. That's in James 1. You can disbelieve God's word, secondly, fail to obey him. You can become discontent with God's sovereignty, if you will. Thirdly, you, got, you doubt his character. You disbelieve his word. You are discontent in God's sovereignty. But listen, what's your, what's your exhortation? Go back now to James. He says there, we're almost done here. He says, look, he says in chapter 4, resist the devil and he will what? He will flee from you. What a great, great grace principle. Listen, if you stand against him, here's a grace principle. He's going to flee from you. And I'm thinking of Jesus when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him for a more opportune time, right? Listen, if Satan is a roaring lion and he accuses you, remember this, you have an advocate in heaven who is there to protect you. Satan, listen, is strong, but he's not supreme. 
Listen, he's present, but he's not omnipresent. You submit, therefore, to God and resist the devil. And as you do so through God's strength and grace, he will provide you all the grace that you need for your stand against him, for your stand against his schemes. And listen, here is that grace principle. Listen, here's the promise to you. As you submit to God, as you resist the devil, he's going to flee from you and you can live under the umbrella of his protection, not based on your own strength, not based on your own energy, but on the strength and the grace that the Lord Jesus provides. Listen, we have no excuse, do we? He's going to give us all the means we need to live in the 21st century to be obedient to him. May God give us the grace to follow.